we are getting on that plane. I, I don't understand. What about you? I'm staying here till the plane gets safely away. No, Greg, what has happened to you? Last night... Last night we said a great many things. You said I was to do the thinking for both of us. Well, I've done a lot of it since then, and it all adds up to one thing. Higher temperatures over the next decade mixed with a growing global population will continue to increase energy demand, accelerating the loop of emissions that cause climate change that cause more emissions. But, Greg, no, I... You've got to listen to me. Do you have any idea what you have to look forward to if you stayed here? Rain is projected to drop up to 40% in some places. Less water, a key ingredient in power production, will constrain energy generation systems. What's more, government analysts anticipate that a higher projected chance of flooding in certain areas will risk inundating power generators and disrupting transmission routes. You're saying this only to make me go! I'm saying it because it's true. Inside of us, we both know climate change is expected to increase atmospheric ozone up to 10 parts per billion. If that plane leaves the ground and you're not on it, you'll regret it. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but soon, as sea levels continue to rise between 4 inches and 36 inches over the next 100 years. What about us? We'll always have Paris. We had it in Kyoto. Then we lost it in Copenhagen in 2009. We got it back last night. They should really have these climate change conferences more often. Kion, I'm no good at being noble, but it doesn't take much to see that the problems of three little people don't amount to a hill of beans in this warming world. Who is the third person? Al Gore. Someday you'll understand that. Here's looking at you, kid. No matter how many times I watch this movie, it just destroys me. The language is so romantic. So here's a show about the latest efforts to fight climate change. And now he's buying up seaside property in western Pennsylvania. Colin McEnroe. Yeah, we're going to have crab shacks, clam shacks, all that kind of stuff. We're just going to wait for that tide to roll in. Uh, I, I believe in looking ahead. Now, we are talking today about climate change. We're talking about things that can be done to mitigate climate change. Some things that do involve the government, kind of, sort of, and some which don't. But um, first of all, let me tell you who's here, and then we'll go on to all this. Well, we're, as I said in the promo, we're kind of sitting right now in a space. It's a space between the Pope's encyclical, cyclical, which is a quite a recent um, uh, development, and the December uh, meetings in Paris, uh, the, the big climate summit in Paris. So it's kind of a good time maybe to sort of look at what can be done, uh, what needs to be done, and how anything that we do is probably going to fall short of what really, we really needed to do. But anyway, Anyway, in studio with me, Dr. John Gowdy. He is uh, an expert in ecological economics and a professor uh, at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute uh, in New York. Uh, also in uh, studio with me, Jim Stotter, uh, an economist and a professor uh, associated with both Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute uh, here in Hartford and also the Coast Guard Academy, although his views are his own, not those of the Coast Guard. Uh, they're very uh, sensitive about where the coastline actually is and you know, <laughs> may, may change. So, um, And then uh, joining us also uh, through a Studio Connect from Stanford University, uh, Dr. Chris Field, founding director of the Carnegie Institution's Department of Global Ecology and professor for interdisciplinary environmental studies at Stanford University, and Catherine Mock, uh, a scientist at Carnegie Mellon's, uh, in, no, the Carnegie, Carnegie Institution's Department of Global Ecology. I will get through these introductions. At Stanford University, she's also co-director of science for the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. That's the IPCC Working Group 2. You hear about the IPCC a lot when we're talking about this. So we're going to be talking about ideas and, and initiatives and exhortations. But, Jim, maybe just to kind of set the stage for this, as I was saying to you before we went on the air, I feel like what we're really doing 
is talking about what we're going to do instead of government doing what we think is government's rulemaking function. I mean, maybe this is the biggest challenge that governments have ever faced, the actual preservation of civilization in a recognizable form because of this incredible threat. And it feels as though what we have to do are talk about these these chimeras, these kinds of fusion solutions, as opposed to government basically making a set of rules that would firmly and directly address the problem. Yeah, I, I agree that it's a, it's a failure of government. And in, in large part, that's because the nature of the threat is so global and that governments, we do not have a true global government. And, you know, some people would say good, um, but or uh, or uh, or maybe some people are paranoid enough to think we have an effective global government. But um, if you when we have clear national threats that are national, like, you know, flooding or a, you know, a foreign invasion, government can mobilize to do something about it. But when it's an international threat and you have the double problem of what one country does affects all the countries and also the costs of doing something about it now are now, but the benefits are over thousands of years into the future. Governments just aren't set up to do that. And so that's part of it. We, we, and part of it is the, the global nature of the threat and the fact that really, essentially, if everybody doesn't do something about it, uh, then governments feel as though individually nation states are putting themselves at a disadvantage uh, if they do various kinds of rulemaking, which may put them at a disadvantage. They think anyway. We could debate that. But John Gowdy, um, it seems to me the other part of this is that um, a lot of governments are heavily influenced by industries within the government that also sure. don't want to do these things, right? Uh, sure, and I, I uh, you know, it's kind of strange. I'm a non-religious person and economist, so it was strange reading the document, agreeing almost entirely with the Pope uh, against the economic worldview. And uh, I think it's important to recognize this document as being a lot about a lot more than climate change. Uh, it's really the the Pope's view. It really is the economy, humans, and nature as part of a, a sort of a co-evolving evolutionary system, as opposed to this sort of one one-dimensional mu. Of uh, you know that that gets caught up in markets. The only value of a person in nature is an input and in, and in production, and uh, the, it's a very profound document. And uh, I think it really spells out this sort of clash of theologies and you know two kinds of theologies: are humans uh, a sharing creature, part of the natural world? We have obligations to each other, uh, versus the uh, sort of the other worldview of um, again the, the only. Uh, purpose of humans is to be a cog uh, in the economic system. And uh, a lot of students, there's actually a great article uh, written about 15 years ago by uh, Harvey Cox called uh, The Market is God. Uh, and it's um, it's part of this sort of really millennial old view of, uh, uh, you know, equilibrium within a field of forces. And if you go, you know, think about the, the Garden of Eden, all right, God had created this perfect uh, system, and humans came in, they disobeyed him, they ate the forbidden fruit and, and wrecked everything. And the the standard view of the market is really very similar. You have this near-to-equilibrium system, perfect competition, and uh, it's it's only humans, human uh, nature that really interferes with. So if you substitute, like, labor unions and government regulation for the apple, you get the same reaction, the same worldview. Well, John, the other thing that's very clear in the Pope's message in the encyclical, by the way, we're live here in the afternoon. If you want to call in, if you want to tweet, tweeting is good. WNPR, Colin, uh, Greg Hill. 
alias Humphrey Bogart, is uh, in there uh, tweeting back at you at WNPR. Colin, you can call us at 860-275-7266. Now I have to remember what I was saying. All right. So one of the Pope's themes for uh, this particular Pope's themes and a consistent theme of the Roman Catholic Church is economic justice, right? And that's really there in the encyclical that not only is this wrong, it's wrong to do the to the planet. He says the earth, our home is beginning to look more and more like an immense pile of filth, which is pretty strong language language, for the Pope. But beyond that, he says it's also not fair because there's winners and losers, or at least there's sort of survivors and losers, right? That 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 we know, we intuitively know when we think about this stuff, just as a a basic instinctual tripwire inside us that says, well, I certainly hope I can do everything for my kids so that they don't have to live with the worst consequences of this. But the implication uh, of that is there are going to be all kinds of people spread across the the globe who will live with the worst consequences of that. I see that very much in his argument, that it's fundamentally unfair in terms of how the tragedy and horror is going to spread out. Right. And we're seeing this already. Some people say conflicts in the Middle East and so on. I've done some work in South Asia, uh, Pakistan, Sunderbarns, and India. And, uh, you know, you have a, a, a billion people there that really depend on glacial water for the Himalayas. Uh, there's going to be mass migrations, uh, social conflicts uh, over remaining resources, and so on. I mean, these people are going to have to go uh, somewhere. If I could say, yeah. related to uh, what you just said, Colin, I think a really powerful thing in the encyclical is he says the deserts are increasing in the world because of the increasing desert in our hearts. Mm-hmm. That the alienation of human beings from each other and even alienation from your own real deep nature, of course you're not going to care about future generations. I mean, if the way we're acting means effectively we don't care about our own great-grandchildren, you know, why should we, why should I care about somebody on the other side of the world or in a hundred years? So it's that, you know, a a very narrow market blinkered selfishness that drives it all. All right, so Pope Francis, you've already got an economist talking about his heart. Um, so that's a pretty big accomplishment right there. Let's go over to the scientist, uh, Dr. Chris Field, Dr. Catherine Mach. Um, this is also an unusual situation. Not that religion and science are always at loggerheads. They're not. But I think, uh, I mean, do you feel as though it's kind of, you're kind of at an odd moment where, as a scientific community, you're saying, Thank heavens, I guess that's appropriate. Thank heavens, the Pope is weighing in on this. Maybe we'll finally get some help with our problems. Chris Field, how odd does this seem to you? It's not odd at all. In the scientific community, we've made it clear that there's a tremendous amount of scientific evidence about the way human actions are changing the climate. But it's also deeply clear, as Jim and John have both already described, that the problem is rooted in differences in values. Um, there is a fundamental nature of this issue where it's impacting people differently. It's, it's unfair. Uh, the, the science can't speak to how to address the unfairness component, but it's there. It needs to be amplified. It needs to be decided by a, a whole range of conversations. Uh, one of my favorite parts of the encyclical is where the Pope calls out for millions of conversations to address this issue. The scientific community is a key part of that series of conversations, but it needs to extend across governments. It needs to extend across the private sector. It needs to extend across communities of faith around the world, and that's the only recipe for success. Catherine Mock, uh, a, a number of people have expressed uh, not exactly surprise, but a certain amount of respect for the fact there was quite a bit of scientific language in this encyclical. It seemed as though Pope Francis had done a pretty deep dive 
into climate science. He's not just making a moral argument, an economic justice argument. I mean, he seems to be trying to understand the science here, too, too, right? Yeah, I think a really interesting part of the encyclical is that Pope Francis is taking a serious look at the science. And as Chris described, the fact that we know our emissions of heat-trapping gases are posing serious risks. And on top of that look at the science, I think he applies two things that are totally fundamental in the climate challenge. The first is that role of values that Chris described, the idea that if we think about what does climate change mean for the rich versus the poor, for the present versus the future, for our economies versus nature, we get different answers, and those are not answers where science can assert whose values matter and how much. And the second thing he layers on that look at the science is the importance of leadership, individual responsibility. This is roles for firms in terms of thinking about how to prepare for impacts and their energy uses, and it's also roles for governments and communities. So, um, John, I said we're in kind of a space, and but really the months are stretching out in between the encyclical and the meetings in Paris in December. But the the Pope's bishops uh, have said, oh, yes, he expects this to play a role. Mm-hmm. He did this uh, to set the stage for a certain kind of talk in Paris. And I know it's very it's hard to predict anything because, I mean, th- this particular scenario has never, to the best of my knowledge, unfolded or nothing like it has ever unfolded. But, I mean, d- would you imagine that this does at all change the dynamic of those talks? Uh, I think so. Uh, I'm not real, I have to say I'm not optimistic about the sort of the the outcome of the, the Paris talks and agreements in terms of actually having a significant role in reducing uh, CO2 uh, emissions. But, it, you know, we need to start the ball rolling. We need to take step up to the plate and at least get uh, mechanisms in place uh, that let us get there. And important, I think people have been sort of tiptoeing around this, but uh, the Pope in this encyclical is very clear about the need for regulatory norms. Uh, you really need enforceable global agreements. And uh, it's, it's, it's fine to talk about changing morality and changing consumption patterns at an individual level and all that, but that's just not going to be enough. We need enforceable global agreements to uh, reduce uh, CO2 emissions and, and phase out fossil fuels, which he says in this document. You know, uh, Jim, in some ways the debate seems unusual, although it's it's not that unusual. I was trying to compare it to other debates, and um, it, it's it's a little bit similar to the d- debate that we had for decades over cigarette smoking, right, that uh, we know that cigarette smoking is harmful. But there were, would always be this contingent of people, this ever-shrinking contingent of people who, who, who thought that the risks were being exaggerated. But as they shrank away, government could get more involved. They could at least make it incredibly expensive. Uh, uh, they could tax it to pieces, if not uh, ban it or regulate it. Um, we, we do it a little bit with guns here. You know, we sort of, we know guns are dangerous, but there's all there's this loud contingent talking about the Second Amendment, uh, insisting that people are safer with guns, uh, pastors in the pulpit. That's the, ra- the latest thing, this notion of a first church of a packing Christ so the, you know, the uh, pastor can shoot back at, at interlopers. So there's always that. But this is, this is, I think, especially unusual because in addition to the stumbling blocks we've already talked about, there's still this contingent, and it's hard to know how big it is. Maybe Chris and Catherine have some ideas. We'll go to them in a second. Arguing that it's just not real. It comes from someplace else. It's the sun warming up. It's part of natural cycles of the earth. I mean, we really don't have unanimity as um, a human race about this. Yeah, I mean, I, I would. It's it's even worse probably than the tobacco companies. You know, versus the consensus about tobacco and, and cancer. It's the same Be- people, too. Yeah, <laughs> and because, it, but there's even there's even bigger economic interests mm-hmm. in play. 
Um, and it's mm-hmm. I, I, I just think it's it's remarkable. I mean, to take a an old analogy, if you had ninety eight percent of the doctors telling you that you had cancer, and there was a consensus of ninety eight percent of them that you really had to operate, and then there was these two percent, you know, of of people, okay, they had some kind of science degree, and they said, no, you really you can. Uh, do this other uh, other special kind of uh, faith healing. Um, you know how many people would go with the two percent? That's essentially what the uh, what the global climate s- skeptics are telling us to do. And I, I th- we just wouldn't do it in any unless we had very strong economic interests pushing us that way. Well, if you think the Pope is exempt from this kind of a pushback, um, the Guardian went to the I believe the Heartland Conference. This is one of these conference of climate climate deniers. Here's what that sounded like. Is it a pope, is it, is the pope oh, everyone's going to ride the Pope now. Isn't that wonderful? Well, the Pope ought to stay with his job and, and let us stay with ours. I don't believe that this is a moral issue. Unfortunately, the Pope has been inundated with uh, green advisors. Well, actually, I think the Pope's irrelevant on this issue. And my feeling is the Catholic Church has been losing its uh, support, losing its congregation, and he's just one more opinion. Considering the, the popes in the past have put people to death by incinerating them, what the pope did to Galileo, I don't subscribe to anything he says at this point. All right, so take that pope. I don't, I don't see how you can really lay Galileo at Pope <laughs> Francis's feet, but there you go. So, Catherine Mock, one of the things that's weird to watch about this, and maybe one of the ways this is a little bit different, as Jim said, from smoking, is you would expect that there would be this gra- this gradual but steady and irreversible upturn in acceptance of the science here. But it doesn't seem to be the way that, that public opinion on this works. It, it seems to work a little bit more like a pendulum. Um, and, and so you, one wonders how much of an impact on that process Pope Francis can have. I think when it comes to thinking about what do we know and what is opinion on what we know, it's helpful to kind of think a little bit broader than the U.S. skeptic movement. So first of all, what do we know scientifically? It's really an unequivocal understanding of the problem of climate change, that the climate is warming, that those uh, the warming of the climate system is leading to changes in extreme events and changes in our ocean on our land. We know that's due to our human emissions. So we have this very clear scientific understanding of the problem space. We increasingly understand the full range of options moving forward. If you step around the globe, you don't necessarily feel that same opinion that you get in many U.S. contexts. There is broad understanding, whether you're talking to people in communities in rural Africa or governments or firms, of the reality of this issue, the seriousness of the risks, and the fact that we need to take responses. And then I think you're exactly right that opinion does not budge gradually. We're looking at transformations of our energy systems, and we're also looking at transformations of social attitudes that likely will come in unexpected ways, where when there's momentum building towards an understanding of the problem, a feasibility of the solutions, it may not be that much of a problem anymore. And and so, Chris, I mean, that raises the question of how important public opinion really is. Is there a certain point in which it stops mattering that somehow or other the initiatives just go forward with or without, you know, the remaining 30 percent or, or whatever it is of the people? Public opinions are really important. You know, I think that Catherine makes a really important point that often – attitudes change in really rapid and really unexpected ways. I, I think there's a good chance we're at a real turning point now where, you know, in the U.S., there's broad understanding that 
Climate change is an important issue, broad agreement that we should be doing something about it, but it's never risen into the top two or three priorities. It's it's easy to um, let other things enter the kind of immediate consciousness. And I think that what we need is a, is a way to uh, think clearly and think hard about what kind of responsibility we face. And it, it feels to me like the combination of the world coming together at the end of this year in Paris, uh, the Pope's really clear message, may in fact be creating a kind of a turning point that lets a real floodgate of new solutions come forward. And those solutions can build on what's really been a quite compelling uh, series of accomplishments. It's definitely not a glass entirely empty situation. We're seeing uh, real initiatives to get a handle on emissions around the world, including in New England, including in California, including in Europe. Lots of places where we're experimenting with solutions. And I think what we need to do is just raise the ambition to the level where we can really implement those globally and we can implement them on a pace that can address the issue. You know, Jim, I know you got something to say about this, but I, I, and maybe I can sort of fold something else into your answer, which is, you know, um, first of all, uh, from, as the Pope would say, from Chris's lips to God's ears, uh, I, you know, I hope that's real. All of that stuff is, is really true. But as I even look at the reaction to, to Pope Francis here in, in the political system, first of all, you got actual Catholic Republican politicians who are running for president who are backing away from the Pope on this as fast as they can, whether it's Santorum, whether it's Rubio, whether it's Jeb Bush. They're saying, I mean, Jeb Bush was saying, well, geez, I really think church should be about making making us better people, not about getting into politics, as if these two things were extricable from one another. But, I mean, they've all got pollsters and internal polling mechanisms, so they all know whether it's in their best interest or not to jump in on this issue. They've got the backing of the Pope for once in their lives, and they still don't want to do it. To me, that says, wow, the support maybe isn't all that broad. Well, I, I would I'd like to make an argument that the the glass being more than half full. I mean, they're they're running for the Republican primary, and that's a that's a much more narrow base of you know, hey, cl- climate skeptics, you know, evolution de- deniers, y- you name it. Um, but it, the I I see some a growing crescendo of evidence and consensus on many fronts, both popular and elite. And, and even corporate, um, most polling I've seen shows that a majority of Americans, even a majority of Republicans, uh, believe that there's a, a problem with climate change going on. Um, the, uh, a couple of things that I think pretty amazing that have happened recently, just a couple of weeks ago, Shell Oil and British Gas uh, and a number of other European uh, gas companies said that there should be a global price on carbon, which is when we get to the what do we do about it part of it is is what most economists agree is the is the way forward now why would they do something like that? you know because that makes their own oil resources in the ground less valuable if it 's going to be taxed well, I think part of the reason is they want to get in front of global opinion, but another part of it is. They've already made big moves, especially Shell, and by acquiring British gas into natural gas. And natural gas is much cleaner. It's half as much uh, carbon as coal. So I, I see, some, I see a, a growing consensus, and these guys are just standing in the way. All right, let me uh, grab a call from Thad, which I think I'm going to have Jim answer, and then um, uh, and then we'll uh, no, excuse me, I have John Gowdy uh, in answer, and then we'll kind of move to a break. Uh, Thad, you're on the air. 
Yes, I'm calling from Southbury. Uh, you know, the one interesting thing about this whole uh, Pope's encyclical and so forth is uh, the omission of the population explosion and uh, the church's uh, stand on on uh, population control. Um, going from less than 3 billion people to over 7 billion people in my lifetime alone, with projections at uh, 11 billion by the year 2050, that's the biggest single contributor to all of this climate change, all the uh, pollutants and all the filth that he was talking about. And unless we address population control, the rest of it is, is going to be moved. Well, you got to give this pope credit. He's closer to addressing that question than any pope who's ever come before him, that I, in my lifetime anyway. But uh, John Gowdy, uh, maybe not so much the, uh, the, the papal theology of population, but the population dimension of this question. Oh, he's absolutely right. I mean, it's critical. Again, uh, maybe I was born about the same time, but I think the population is tripled within uh, my lifetime. And it's part of a, a, a really, this sometimes it's called the Great Acceleration after World War II. Uh, when I was born, uh, CO2 levels weren't much above the, the pre-industrial levels. They probably they went, ran 300, I think. They've gone to 400 within my lifetime. By the end of the century, it'll, they'll go up to seven or 800. Uh, species, there was just a report by the World Wildlife Fund, I, th- I think, on uh, between 1970 and 2010, something like half the populations of vertebrates have disappeared, like half the individual members of these species. I mean, it's just absolutely astounding what's happened. Uh, within the lifetime of one person. It's it's unprecedented in, in human history, certainly, or three or four million years, depending on what you call human. But, yeah, population is, is definitely uh, inter- intermingled in there, and it's really hard to understand what's happening. Things are happening so fast. Uh, again, the, the CO2 levels for the past three or four million years have varied by about 40 parts per million between you know up around uh, 240 up to 280 and back down to 200. They got us in and out of ice ages. And now we're probably going to be up to 700 within the lifetimes of uh, my grandchildren. I mean, it's astonishing. All right. We're going to take a break here, and then we're going to get ready uh, for the Paris conference uh, and tell you what's supposed to happen there. It's Central Park. Everyone's out today. The daisies and dogwoods are rolling bloom. Oh, what a glorious day. Picnics and frisbees and roller skaters, friends and lovers and lonely sunbathers. Everyone's out in Mary, Manhattan in January. How big of a threat do you think global warming actually is? I think it's a big threat. Yes, I really do. Just over the years to see what's happening, especially at the pole with the ice falling, and it looked like a very big problem. I'm fairly convinced that it's a major threat uh, no matter uh, no matter what your values are and no matter how you look at it. Global warming, it's going to cause problems probably by the end of my lifetime or my children's lifetime. I'm almost 21, and I'm not sure if anything can be done at this point. Global warming is going to have catastrophic effects, and I think what's most tragic is that we Americans who contributed the most to global warming are going to be the ones who are harmed not nearly as badly as people elsewhere in the world. 
And there you go at the end uh, with uh, precisely the uh, point the Pope's making. So in studio with me, we have economist John Gowdy and uh, Jim Stoddard, uh, both of them affiliated with Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute. Uh, and uh, joining us by uh, studio connection, we have Dr. Chris Field and uh, Dr. Catherine Mock. Uh, both of them are climate scientists in one way or another. Um, I, I do want to talk about Paris. Uh, and Catherine Mach, I'm going to begin with you. Uh, we know that the, the meeting in Paris is coming up, but I think the average person doesn't really know what these meetings are like or what's expected to come out of them. This is the UNFCCC, COP21, and I refuse to even sort of try to figure out what all those initials mean. But but Catherine, what what is supposed to happen at this? And in other words, ideally, what comes out uh, of a meeting like this one? So what happens in these meetings is that all of the governments of the world who are signatories to the Framework Convention on Climate Change come together and figure out what actions can they take to prevent dangerous climate change. And right now, where they're starting from is the idea that they have agreed that two degrees Celsius temperature increase is the upper limit to warming, where there will be some impacts that are dangerous for some people, but largely the risks are manageable. And so what they're putting in place right now on the road to Paris is a framework where every country in the world will be making pledges of their best, most ambitious efforts to turn the tide on their rising emissions and to prepare for impacts that can't be avoided. Really embracing the concept of fairness on the global stage, that people have different capabilities, and that we both need to think about emissions reductions and preparing for impacts. Um, Chris Fields, uh, sometimes uh, it gets suggested that this uh, two-degree warning uh, goal be, is unrealistic, that it's going to be three, it's going to be four, that it, it's actually not helpful to set a limit that in, that the world can't possibly meet. What's your take on that? Uh, a limit like 2C is, I think, an incredibly important part of the global dialogue. It provides a, a target to shoot for. It provides a level of ambition. Uh, the 2C target was determined not entirely by a scientific process, really determined by a political process where scientists provided everything they knew about the way the level of risk changes with the amount of warming, and that includes risks for poor and risks for rich. It includes, it includes risks of extreme events as well as risks of very long-term changes. And it also includes the risks of some tipping points where the world may uh, go into an unacceptable state. And, and we know that there's a lot of uncertainty surrounding those. We know that as time goes along, we may need to reset that target or we may not be successful at getting exactly to the 2C level. But what we can say with a very high level of confidence is that getting close to 2C is going to be much more protective of lives and ecosystems and corporations uh, than letting the temperature climb to uh, 3C or 4C or even more. Continued high emissions on the pathway we're on is almost certain to lead to end of 21st century temperatures that are more than 4C, more than 7 degrees Fahrenheit at the global average, uh, warmer than they were at the start of the Industrial Revolution. The risks at those levels are so great uh, that's really all bets are off. And if we can be ambitious and end up with something like the 2C targets, 3.6 degrees Fahrenheit, there will be impacts. But around the world, those impacts are mostly manageable if we're smart and ambitious about the combination of managing the risks that can't be avoided and decreasing the amount of climate change that occurs. 
Um, John Gowdy, uh, economics looks at human behavior a lot of the time. And so I'll, I'll sort of ask you the same question. I mean, in terms of goal setting, in terms of, you know, goals that come out of a summit like this one, um, what does it make sense to do? Present an optimal goal like 2C, uh, even if you feel as though the world can never hit that, hit that mark? Uh, I think well, the, the most important thing, I was just looking this morning some background on the Paris conference. I mean, what they're really looking for is like a binding and universal agreement. And to me, that's the key. And again, changing individual behavior is fine, but we, and, um, we just need leadership at the global level, especially from the U.S. and especially from China. Uh, you mentioned that most of the, the emissions now come from the West, including the U.S., but within a, a decade or so, most of the carbon in the atmosphere will, will be from China and India. So that, that whole moral argument they're making is flipping too. Uh, and they're the ones that are going to suffer the most, these poor countries, especially India, Pakistan, these long coasts. So, I mean, it's like uh, if your house is on fire, you, you just don't say, well, I didn't start that. I'm not going to do anything about it. So they're going to have to get on board. And the more China does, the more India does, the more pressure it puts on the U.S. Um, Catherine, obviously, um, one of the models we have for looking at this is, is Kyoto. Kyoto protocols, I think, expired in 2012. Um, it was a different situation. And for all of the reasons that you guys have been saying, um, the arguments are that much more pressing. One assumes that U.S. participation will be more significant. Um, I mean, is there a reason to su- suppose that Paris will be more effective in coming up with some kind of universal and binding agreement, to use John's uh, term, than, than what we've had in the past? I think we have a lot of confidence that what we're looking at in Paris is preparing a foundation for long-term action. Climate change is a big challenge in that almost all aspects of our lives are affected, and we're wealthy and happy and have comfortable lives because of the emissions that have happened to date. And so the challenge ahead that looks maybe a little bit harder than it did in 1992, 1994, is that we've got to break that linkage between emissions of heat-trapping gases and economic growth. And to do that, we do have to look at a global stage, not just the richest nations, but recognizing that over the course of the 21st century, many nations want to be rising into middle-income status, high-income status, increasing their quality of life, and doing that in a way, achieving a new energy system where there aren't these external damages occurring in the climate system. Um, Chris, maybe it's just worth saying, what does the world look like uh, with, uh, with the seven sea rise? I mean, if in fact things just went unchecked, um, I mean, these, these scenarios get sketched out all the time, but maybe worthwhile reminding people what does happen. We don't know. Uh, mm. That's the scary thing. Mm. Uh, what we can say is that we're committed to total loss of a continental ice sheet somewhere between um, a couple of degrees Fahrenheit and five or six degrees Fahrenheit of total global warming. We've seen a little more than one so far. A loss of a of a continental ice sheet like Greenland or West Antarctica means a sea level rise between 15 and 25 feet. I, I don't know what your sea level there is there at, um, at Hartford, but much of the East Coast goes away. Certainly much of Florida goes away. Uh, California loses a huge amount of area. And, of course, in in developing regions, especially megacities on major deltas are almost totally gone. Um, in a world that's that's 4C, something like, like 7 Fahrenheit above pre-industrial, we're looking at risks of major impacts of um, water shortages, major failures of crops, uh, huge challenges to having people be able to work productively around the year and around the world, uh, major changes in where people can live. And increasingly, we understand that these kinds of pressures create a 
huge range of social challenges that you can think of as, as social teleconnections, where a crop failure in one place leads to uh, civil unrest, that leads to migration, that leads to um, transmission of a communicable disease. And so we're really looking at an interleague system where the risks have the potential to really spiral out of control. On the other hand, we know that a lot of the steps that we can take now uh, can moderate not only the risk from climate change, but can also put in place the pieces for society to be able to cope more effectively uh, with the ch- with the climate changes that do need to occur, or that will occur. Uh, in What we've learned recently is that the broad agenda for sustainable development, the agenda to lift people out of poverty, can in fact be aligned with the agenda to fight climate change. And that's really where we need to go. All right. We're going to grab a break here. First of all, I'm going to say thanks to Chris and to Catherine. Uh, We're going to grab a break here. We're going to come back. We're going to talk more about some of the economics of this when we return. I'm not sure that I will be very well suited to the new post-climate change society. It bothers me. Today's show was produced by Josh Nalea and me, Kion Wolf. Our interns are Anna Geismar, Allison Ehrenreich, and Katie McAuliffe. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. The part of Bill Curry was played by Claude Rains. For show pages, articles, and videos of the Faith Middleton Show staff tasting the new Alaskan wines, visit our website, wnpr.org slash Colin. On tomorrow's show, how propaganda works. And now, back to Colin. You know, it is sort of a frivolous thing compared to everything that we just talked about. But in fact, the wine industry is being transformed in, in very strange ways by by climate change. And one of the many ways you can sort of see that it's real because grapes are very sensitive uh, to these kinds of changes. All right. So we're going to be uh, talking uh, uh, economics with uh, Dr. John Gowdy, an expert in ecological economics uh, associated with Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute. So is Jim Stotter, also a t- uh, associated with the Coast Guard Academy, but they are not. He is not responsible for them. They are not responsible for him, all that kind of stuff. His opinions are his own. That's what I'm trying to say here. So, um, John, uh, we're going to get into some, and Jim's going to sort of give us uh, his his, uh, example of one of the more sensible proposals that's out there. But before we begin, I mean, you look at the Pope's encyclical. I mean, he... He's very tough on capitalism. I mean, yeah. he, capitalism and plunder are, right. are words that he just links constantly. Uh, it's almost as, as if he feels that that model of acquisition yeah. is right. is the, the the engine driving a lot of this. Yeah, I was struck by really sort of the radical nature. I think that's something that, that people are missing. Uh, I just have a couple of quotes from the encyclical. Uh, the natural environment is a collective good, the patrimony of all humanity and the responsibility of everyone. So he's really seeing it sort of a different kind of economy, economy based on human well-being and human dignity rather than just uh, material goods. Uh, Even more directly, he says, uh, the Christian tradition has never recognized the right to private property as as absolute or inviolable, and has stressed the social purpose of all forms of of private property. One more, uh, hence every ecological approach needs to incorporate a social perspective which takes into account the fundamental rights of the poor and underprivileged. I mean, he really doesn't mince any words about uh, we need to do something different. And so, Jim, can you stick up for capitalism at all, or at least for some kind of economic model that takes into account um, the the continued interests of the human race as opposed to um, the immediate moment in an economy? 
Right. I mean, there are people, uh, David Brooks in the New York Times today is saying that, you know, the, co- the Pope is anti-capitalist. Um, I, I think that goes too far. He's, he's against a, as John would put it, and I think it's, it's a right way to put it, a god of the market of a, an absolutely unfettered, unlimited uh, decision thinking that the choices of the market are always the right choice. Um, but look, you know, modern capitalism uh, got started in in, in, a, in a Catholic country, Italy. It's um, it, the the document says that uh, business is an honorable profession. Uh, that there's been you know great increases in in wealth and well being in many ways. So it, I don't see it as as anti capitalist. But here's the here's the the key thing that says you can't let just business decide. It's looking at the long-term future. Businesses in their ordinary, everyday, long-term planning have a horizon of 30 to 100 years, and, and, and it hardly ever gets out to 100, okay? That's the really long-seeing uh, uh, companies. So, and that's because they're you know, essentially looking at profitability and the money value of things going forward. And we have to be thinking about a thousand years and 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 more. We have to be thinking about the whole future of the human race here. And uh, essentially, ordinary business is just not capable. Ordinary profit-seeking companies are not capable of thinking that far ahead. So we have to do something else. So one thing that we know, John, is that human beings um, have occasionally struggled to think about the future. Uh, This brings up my favorite term of today's show, hyperbolic discounting. Explain uh, what that is. Well, uh, economic standard economic models is based on discounting the future. And the model really, it's a financial investment model. Uh, if you have a pile of money, how do you maximize the the future flow of income? So, you know, you want to diversify stocks, bonds, whatever people with money do, I wouldn't really know. But uh, so something from the point of view of an individual, you'd rather have something now than tomorrow, a year from now, and so on. So traditionally, uh, economists have used something called straight line discounting, you know, 5%, 1%, 2%. 2% uh, and at any positive discount rate, I mean, something is worth... Uh, even if it's 1%, after 50 years, something is worth very little. 100 years, it's worth nothing. And in terms of the, the climate economics, the damages are going to be felt in the distant future. The costs are going to have to be borne now. So uh, the, the the damages are worth really uh, discounting. We look at it from the, the point of view of an individual. Hyperbolic discounting uh, recognizes that people uh, would rather have something like a year from now uh, as opposed to two years from now and so on. So the discount rate can be high in the immediate, immediate future, but then it can, there can be zero or no discount when you go out 25 or 50 years. So it looks like a, a hyperbola. So, uh, you know, would you rather have something in 50 years or 51 years? You know, people don't really care. Uh, so it, that has the effect of making damages in the future have a higher value, worth more in the deliberation. So people like William Nordhaus and his climate modeler are now using hyperbolic discounting. But I, again, I make the point that uh, sometimes this is called a social discount rate, but it's not really. Um, I mean, I, people are starting to, uh, and the economic impacts are starting not to discount. You just have the numbers. In the year 2100, this is going to be the value of the damage. I mean, inflation doesn't really play a role here either. That's kind of a red herring. But, uh, you know, you want to want the real numbers. What's the damage per capita for, for those people at that point in time, not from the perspective of 2015? 
All right, so um, we're running out of time, and we actually do have one idea here that seems like it makes sense and might begin to address this whole problem of countries, uh, nation states thinking, I'm not going to do anything because he's not going to do anything, uh, so why should we do anything? So, so how do we get at that, Jim? Right. Well, it started out talking about the failure of government, and governments start out very, very weakly. You know, And if you look at um, parliaments, like European parliaments, you know, parliament means to talk. They're basically, you know, congresses of warlords um, meeting together. And they're consensus organizations. That's what the UN is. That's what these Kyoto-type uh, conferences have been so much. They're essentially, they will do what they all agree to do anyway. They're consensus-only organizations. It's very difficult. I mean, that's fine. That's a good place to start. But you can't you can't have anything like an effective government on that basis. You need some power to compel people to do what they said they were going to do. Um, and John is absolutely right that you need some kind of bind, binding agreement. So the problem is, how do we get a consensus only organization like like Paris or like the UN to make binding agreements? Uh, the, a, uh, a very well-known uh, e- economic professor uh, who's been writing on ecology issues for 40 years at uh, Yale University, William Nordhaus, um, whom I had the, the pleasure of knowing and working a little bit with when I was a, a grad student there, has come up with an argument that a, a model, a very well-specified model, that an, I think is getting a growing audience of economists to think it's it's a practical way forward. And it's really pretty simple. He, he calls it a climate club. And it's basically that uh, a number of countries, and typically it'll probably be the richest countries to start out with, um, form a club in which they agree to put a price, or you could call it a tax, on carbon. He, he uh, recommends a, a fairly low price to begin with, which is about $25 a ton of carbon emissions. That's about what would fill up a good-sized house and kill everybody in it if it was a ton of, of carbon um, uh, uh, at normal uh, atmospheric pressures. Um, and, um, you know, we, uh, we emit billions of those uh, every, every year. And the, the, the idea that makes his proposal work is the club members don't charge any tariffs on imports from each other. But they put a uh, a two to three percent tariff on anyone outside the club who is not pricing their own carbon, and in that way you create a self interest of selfish governments. They don't have to be care about the long term, um, but if they just want to care about their own country's wealth and maybe getting elected, you know, or supported, um, you, people will want to join the club, and uh, it's um. It's getting a it's getting a lot of traction as a serious idea. It's an interesting idea, and we have very little, limited time left, uh, John Gowdy. But I mean, in a way, Pope Francis may not like part of that because you're basically yeah. going to be saying, you know what, developing nations, right. we're going to screw you. We're you know we'll help you in other ways. We'll do what we can to help you in other ways. But on this one, we're going to screw you because ultimately, yeah. it's in your best interest anyway to fix this stuff, right. even though at the moment you don't want to. There's another interesting idea. Um, it's called shaming. It comes from I think there's a book on that written by uh, Jennifer Jacquet at uh, 
NYU. And the idea, there's a lot of really neat stuff coming out now from behavioral science and neuroscience and so on about what really motivates people and how they work. So uh, she applies this. I mean, why not shaming between nations? I think that can be a powerful thing. And again, if, if, the, if, if China or India or the U.S., one of those countries sort of broke and really had uh, we're going to do this, we're going to make these sacrifices. Other nations would be under tremendous pressure to do something also. And you, do 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 you, you're nodding like you believe that 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 oh, actually could work. Oh, I I do. I think I think that you need mechanisms based on self on a very narrow self interest. But there's absolutely nothing to say right. that you shouldn't bring in all everything in your playbook. You know, all of human emotions and culture to support mm-hmm. it. Um, and I I I think that this is um, this is really something that that can work. Well, you know. I don't know. I feel I wish my parents were alive. They were so good at this. Uh, all right. So um, I think we have to end there. But we want to thank everybody who helped out today. I, and I hope this was helpful. This is just a huge, huge topic. But we wanted to, first of all, get you ready to start thinking about Paris, help you understand a little bit about the Pope's encyclical. We're really grateful. Josh Nillet is the guy who put this all together. Uh, and uh, he's also the guy who went out and got the uh, reports from the streets in New Haven, those voices from the street that you heard. So thanks to John Gowdy, Chris Field, Catherine Mock, uh, Jim Stoddard, Thanks to Wolfie on the board. We're going to be back tomorrow with a re- with a related thing. This is we're going to do a rather have a subtle conversation about how propaganda works and how sometimes it under, undermines democracies in ways that we're not aware of. Change the world. Science offers us answers to these huge challenges. It's one global ecosystem. We can do this. We can change the world. Greg, you came back for me. I knew you would. No, darling. I just forgot the AC adapter for my solar-powered plane. And it uses cooking oil as a backup energy source. Isn't that something? May I join you? There's a weight limit. Sorry, kid. <laughs> 